Southern Bramble is a Patreon-supported podcast. If you would like to see full, unedited video recordings of our podcast, ask listener questions, or be thanked by name on each episode, please support the show by subscribing at patreon.com backslash Southern Bramble. It doesn't matter how you dress or what you wear or what you look like. If you say you're a woman, you're a woman. Then somebody commented, quick question. Then what is a woman? Delighted that you asked. Let me explain. Women are beauty. Women are grace. Women are imminent doom. A woman is a swimsuit left out on the lawn after playing with the sprinkler and then being run over by the lawnmower. Women are the feeling of your leg hair flowing in the breeze. Lawnmowers are also women. A woman is when you walk around the corner of a building on a windy day and get smacked in the face with nature. Have you ever seen a video of a raccoon receiving a piece of cotton candy? That's a woman. Women are robust. Women are industrious. Women like Ferb and Phineas. Women are gay. A woman is an orca in high tide. Women Women are not tiaras. Women are not crowns. Women are the aching hands of the metalsmith. Women are... <gasps> Women are... <gasps> Women are mauve, but never chartreuse. Some fan fictions believe that Jesus was the king of kings. Paul Blart was the king of queens. Queen was queen. Who was the queen of kings? Shania Twain. Do I look like Jonathan Van Ness currently? Jonathan Van Ness stunt double when? Ordering something online and realizing you already have it, that's a woman. Women are <gasps> Women are <gasps> Women are yeah. I'm sweating right now and it's because of women. Women are the magazine subscription that you can't cancel. If you ever kept repeating the right answer to a question that nobody heard, you might be a woman. Women are the earth. Women are the sky. The sky is a lesbian. Women are angels. Women are life givers. Women are life takers. Women are everything. A woman is a eucalyptus leaf. Eucalyptus leaf. You can always tell a woman by her big, juicy personality. Respect her. Most importantly, a woman is whatever she wants to be in her wildest nightmare. Any questions? You're listening to Southern Bramble, a podcast of crooked ways. I'm Marshall, the witch of Southern Light. And I'm the girl who will smoke crack and worship Satan, Austin Bane X Bramble on Instagram. Marshall, how are you today? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I've been home, as you know, with COVID all week long. Um, it is officially we're recording this <laughs> like this Sunday before it's going out. So I tested positive on Monday. You know, I'm not going to lie. I first woke up on Monday morning, kind of like this scratchy throat, dry cough, a little bit of a headache. I had a big event that I was supposed to be going to that day. And I was like, you know, I have one of those government tests. I'm gonna, I'll do one real quick, just in case, you know, I'd hate to go to this event and get everyone sick. Because uh, it was the first time the event was no longer pre-testing people, funny enough. And it showed up positive in under 15 minutes. And, um, I'll tell you right now, it was just like, fuck. But also, I'm not going to lie, I kind of needed a break from people. Yeah. Humans are really getting to me lately. And you've been, I mean, you've been so busy with your your Pride events. I mean, you've been yes. hanging with a lot of friends, yes. and mm-hmm, which is good. That's it, good. It's great. But, you know, you know, my entire job as a hairstylist involves touching, talking with, consoling with, being an emotional and physical support for someone at least four days a week. So when I have my three-day weekends, and yes, I am 
very grateful enough to have three-day weekends, but at the same time, as an introverted person, I I worked for it. I'm 17 years in the business. (laughs) And I, I just got to a point where I'm like, you know, it's pushed me to be more of an introvert because unfortunately I feel like I give away all of my reserve throughout the day. And then when I get off of work, I'm just like, shut up. Everyone shut up. Uh I don't want to hear it. I don't care. I was that way too. When I did hear, and I don't think most people realize like how physically and emotionally draining that the job is because you're just Mm -hmm. standing there. Um, it's it's it is not it's not an easy job and it's not always a fun job either and you have to change yourself from client to client depending on what their needs are going to be it's energetically exhausting I um I remember when I would have just like these really busy days when I I worked at one salon because I never I always worked later um, because I lived so far away when I worked uh, in Orlando I would drive like two hours just to get to work right. And I I would remember some nights I would get off of work and I would just sit in my car in silence Mm -hmm. for just staring usually at my phone. But, like, I would sit in, in silence for, like, maybe 30 minutes, sometimes an hour. And then I would, like, finally muster up, like, the ability to, like, just go home. But, like, it, it, it is draining. Yeah. Excuse me. Absolutely. But we are not here today to talk to you about our um, jobs as uh, coiffeurs or... Um, my ex-job as a coiffer today, we are going to be talking to you about um, queerness, and we're also going to be talking to you about, what else, what, what else are we talking about? Well, we, just... we kind of wanted to, to bring some attention. We're slowly nearing the end of, of, of Pride Month. Mm-hmm. Um, we're slowly getting to the point where you know, the rainbow capitalism is going to slowly start dropping off and bindling away. And I think both of us, I write, both of us are kind of in this place now where we really wanted to kind of talk about queerness in witchcraft, queerness in occultism, uh, gender, especially, because I think that's one of the biggest things over the last few years has become a major hot button topic for a lot of people in the witchcraft, paganism and occultism community. Most importantly, those are three different communities that have been umbrellaed under one, which causes a lot of arguments. It causes a lot of posturing. It causes a lot of this is the only right way. And it causes also a lot of, hey, whatever way is right for you is right for you. And personally, I don't think either of those, in my opinion, because this podcast is about my opinion and not yours. Right. <laughs> I don't think either of those are actually quite the right answer, in my opinion. Um, and whoever is going to be listening to this today, you don't have to decide that my opinion is the right opinion either. It's just mine and I have the podcast, so I'm going to say it. <laughs> because it's our show and not yours. <laughs> not yours. Um, um, yeah. I, yeah, and I also think it's funny when people, I hope nobody ever... Um, I think we have to be very upfront with the fact that like it is also our show so yeah it's going to come from our worldview and our opinion we are two queer witches who have no qualms with talking about our our figatry and and uh, mm -hmm, and being loud about it too yes so that's what we're going to be talking about today 
Now, in the past, we have done a animism and queer pride episode, which mm-hmm. actually, if I'm not correct, is still our most listened to episode. And I'm pretty yeah. sure that was like episode three or four. Yeah, um, it's a long one, too. It was a good one. Yeah, and it, it was really good. I think we got into some stuff and maybe, I mean, I haven't listened to that episode, to be fair, uh, in since it came out. So I can't say that we're going to be revisiting some of the conversations on there, but we might be bringing some similar things up. But I think Marshall and I really today wanted to talk about something not different, but really focusing on politics, the definitions of queerness, how it interplays within like spirit relationships, bioessentialism, uh, bioessentialism, and the destruction of that, et cetera, et cetera. So let's get into it. Let's do it. Well, the first thing I think we need to do is go ahead and define the the general accepted understanding of a queer is, and then get into personal I- identities and ideologies. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's hot. So if we're going to go by the definition of queer, if you open up the dictionary and look it up, if you're looking at, I think it's the new Oxford dictionary, um, or might be mixing the new American and the Oxford, it doesn't matter. It, it's, it's The one most, on Google is new Oxford. New Oxford, okay. So the first thing, the number one definition for queer is strange and odd. I want you to sit with that for a breath for a moment, because the first thing that I just said is most likely, if you're outside of this community, not the thing you would have considered to be the definition of queer, because majoritively, most of us know the definition to mean homosexual, and it specifically defines it in parentheses, often used as offensive, and then continues on denoting or relating to a sexual or gender identity that does not correspond to established ideas of sexuality and gender, especially heterosexual norms. This is the second definition. And funny enough, I actually like that it's the second one, even though it's become the most generally accepted popular definition of the word. I like that the first one remains steadfast um, because to me, and I guess, We've got the definition general out there. I'm going to tell you what I think about it. I have always identified with being strange or odd or othered um, since I can remember. I too am strange and unusual. (laughs) Oh, even better. I am too strange and homosexual. (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, I agree with you because uh, we know that that's how the the term started and still continues to be used i also think that there's a lot to unpack within the second term right we have to remember that english dictionaries are inherently english and therefore um reinforce the language that we use which is a relatively western eurocentric one particularly a american one because we're reading i believe the new oxford dictionary Mm -hmm. um it does a lot of American spelling, at least in the way I see it. Maybe that's Google's doing, I don't know. But when we we look at the word queer, I mean, that's that's an English term. And it says that it is outside of established roles of sexuality and gender. Well, outside of whose roles, right? So mm-hmm. we, can, we can think that like, okay, well, it's an English language dictionary. It's an English word. 
and it's talking about outside of the the normalcies of of English or Western conceptualizations of queerness. So already we have a, a, a fallacy in our, or not a fallacy, but a, um, a, a centrism that we're taking on this stance, right? We because we can't look at every other culture and and apply the term queer to those cultures and, and the messiness of all of that. Although I do think it's really important um, because in this episode, as a disclaimer, we'll probably bring up um, people from the past, mm-hmm. um, things that happened a long time ago, and we will be describing these people um, as queer or as trans. And a lot of people are quick to be uh, very to try and shut that down and be like, that's an anachronism. And what you're doing is, is removing something from its context. And while that may be partially true, mm-hmm. I think it is possible that we have the ability to utilize the language that we have now and use that as basically a placeholder for what we would say um, as somebody from, from back in the day, right? Um, mm-hmm. So uh, if anybody feels like coming on to uh, us and, and um, angry typing about all of the um, misappropriations about queerness here, please don't. We are aware of it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but we are using the language of now. Yeah. A lot of these words didn't exist the same way in previous languages. They had other words for them, or they were just on, there was no word for it because it was just so normal. Right. Or, or, in, in England, you know, it was a word that didn't exist yet, but we have, I, I have um, a really, really good article that I'll share, um, but in other cultures, there are language, there are individual words for these people or queerness or mm-hmm. homosexuality or um, non-binary, quote unquote, non-binary people. Um, and I say that in quotations because, again, the application of like putting non-binary onto a group of, of every tribe that has a third, fourth, fifth gender is is complicated. Um, yeah. But what I mean to say is that like, yes, there are these words, like, like Marshall is saying, there are these words and they're not even words that are forgotten by history. There are still cultures that use these words today. Um, so yeah, very interesting here. Marshall, do you want to, sorry, to cut you off, go ahead. No, I was gonna say, um, I think one of the things we need to kind of get into about personal personal definitions of queerness is we need to make sure we're, we're understanding that when it comes to personal definitions, and I don't mean you and me, Austin, I mean people listening and the people who are choosing what their own personal definitions of queer are to them is that we recognize that it is a very large umbrella term in mod in modernity. It is used as a slur. It is used as a power cry. It is used as an identity. It is used as something that has been used to separate others. So when it comes to personal definitions, I may give one of mine and Austin may give one of his and they may not be congruent with yours. And that, that does need to be okay because we're, we're, we're taking back power with a word that for a very long time has always been um, somewhat of a slur. It was used in a derogatory manner um, in most English speaking places up until, I wanna say probably the last, I don't know, 20, 
20, maybe 30 years max, max 30, maybe pushing it. Cause I'm, I'm in my mid thirties now. And I remember being a child. I remember being called fag. I remember being called queer. I remember none of those words ever being associated with something that made me go, yes, I want that. Yeah. And the thing is, is now in my mid thirties, as someone who has, is really getting to know myself, because that is what a witch does. A witch is someone who really gets to get into the depths of themselves to understand how they relate to the natural world around them. And as a witch, as someone who has has owned their identity of queer, of other, of, of on the outside looking in, that's something that took me a long time. And that's something that one of the reasons why we talk about pride so much in all of these in all of these ways, especially during this month and Pride Month, is that we're taking pride in that otherness, that it is no longer separate from the community, it's part of the community. And when I say the community, I don't mean the heteronormative community, I mean the human community. And that's something that I think that taking pride in our queerness, that's something that's what's, in my opinion, very important. And that's something that to me has become an intrinsical part of who I am. The other night I was chatting, I was um, in a precarious situation where I was, mm -hmm, where I was surrounded by a bunch of women who were much older than I was. I thought you were going with that, but go on. (laughs) And we were all um, drinking and we, we were discussing I don't even know how we got onto the subject, but we were discussing queerness and she, one of the, one of the women said, you know, that's funny that you use that term. She she had to, she has to be in her like sixties, seventies. She's like, it's funny that you use that term because growing up, you know, we're taught, I was taught as a kid, like never say that, Um, never apply that to people. And I just, you know, this is somebody who has lived through McCarthyism and uh, was probably cognizant of of that um, by the time she was about like 10. So it's just very interesting to to hear that kind of perspective. Um, but yeah, do you want to give a, a personal definition? I wasn't going anywhere with that. I no, share, I think I, sharing I think with I, the class. Yeah, I think I kind of did. I, I just like that that what it means to me when we're talking about our personal definitions of queerness. To me, it doesn't just mean gay, and I think that's one of the big things because we're about to. I, I know it's not on the brief, but obviously we're going to talk about under queer ecologies when we say things like, especially as I know you've been so vocal about saying things like witchcraft is inherently queer. One of the biggest misconceptions that I think most people misunderstand when they hear those words is I think we're saying it's gay. Queer does not mean gay. Uh Queer does not mean specifically homosexual. Queer has such a large ecology and history and, and transgressiveness. And as I said, means something a little different to all of us who fit in this community and to those who don't. And, and that might be create some confusion. So when we do talk about why witchcraft is inherently queer, it's important that when you're listening, you're not thinking that we're saying witchcraft is gay. If you're not gay, you can't do witchcraft. That's not what's happening. Please don't misquote us. <laughs> right. 
as I have been, I have been misquoted so many times, but it is funny though, to watch people get so mad about it Mm -hmm. because I'm like, you really are just, you're only making your point more apparent and Mm -hmm. your homophobia coming out a little bit, but, but I, um, the, the thing about queerness is, is that it, it is difficult to well you know I always do say that when we say that things are difficult to to explain or to define is is truly lazy instead of giving a definition so I'm not going to do that so I can hold my own self accountable <laughs> but there is a a, um, a toughness because as you said so many people take queerness at face value with like homosexuality blatant homosexuality um being trans um and while all of these things can be true they can also have an absence of both of those things too we know that and this will tie into queer ecology that people we have uh characteristics or markers that we are ingrained or indoctrinated to believe are masculine and feminine traits, right? And these are relatively new and they're always constantly developing. To define queerness is constantly developing. There's a whole area of of philosophical beliefs called queer theory and people are studying it you know, constantly. So to say like define queerness, like queers can't even figure out what they, fully agree on or disagree on right what what that defined term is my point being is that you know I'll, I'll never forget I had a, I had a friend who was um trans mask and uh, he was passing uh very passing in fact um this person had medically transitioned he had top surgery um and was in a hetero passing relationship so he um he was married um and uh they had a from the outside looking in a very hetero passing relationship right and lived in a wonderful house they um owned a food truck etc etc two those who were not friends with them to the passing eye, there was a level of um, like even passing in their relationship, right? They looked heterosexual. But is that then not by definition a very queer relationship? Um, So when we talk about heteronormalcy, cishet patriarchy, there is a breadth, there's more room than just blatantly homosexual, blatantly, um, you know, androgynous, because that's a lot of what like non-binary people also get lumped into is like androgyny, which nobody owes you that either. So I get lumped in there a lot. And so do I, as somebody who, you know, um, again, appears very masculine. We we both do, at least from like the, you know, the shoulders up and, um, you know, we, we may choose to dress however we want or wear makeup or, you know, whatever, but there's a level of um, 
complexity there that I, I think people miss. And I think that's, that's my point in bringing up this person and his wife was, was to also show that there's, it's greater than just okay. blatant gayness or blatant androgyny or, um, you know, even, even um, the complexities of pansexuality, bisexuality, appearing to be in a heteronormative relationship when you are not in a heteronormative relationship at all. So, yeah. And you, I love that you brought that up because it kind of it reminded me of something that I've seen really discussed a lot lately. And I, I, I want to make sure that our listeners are hearing this. Um, queerness is an umbrella term that really truly covers all of the LGBTQIA+, all of the alphabet mafia. It covers all of it. And one of the things that I think people misunderstand, especially in the straight community and in the, in the heteronormative community, if a bi person is dating someone of the opposite gender, they are still bisexual. If, if, a, if a monogamous relationship of someone, if a bisexual woman is in a relationship with a heterosexual man, she is still bisexual. If a, heter- if a, if a bisexual man is still in a relationship with a heterosexual woman, he is still bisexual. They are still queer people. And in fact, the heterosexual person is in a queer relationship. Yeah. And I think and, that's, and that's confusing for people too, right? It is. And I think one of the big things that happens is a lot of people in the in the heterosexual and heteronormative mindset see a bisexual woman married or in a relationship with a heterosexual man, and all of a sudden they do not see her or him if it is if this person is male. And I'm being very binary in this description just for for clearness here. Um, They forget that they're queer, not the person who owns their identity, but the people looking outside in, sometimes even the spouse. And I think one of the big things, because I remember asking this a while ago, and I said, women out there, would you date a bisexual man? And a lot of people said no, because they wouldn't want to they'd be too afraid of him cheating on him with another man. I'd be too afraid that he's gay. I'd be, I don't want him, his eyes wandering, um, all of these things. And this is just one specific question on one specific equation of binary gender. And it was one of those really eye-opening moments that, that I want to talk about because that just right off of the bat needs to be understood that's biphobia. It's a form of homophobia. And it means that if you as a woman won't date a bisexual man, because you're afraid of the things that I listed, one, you don't think that they could be monogamous. You don't think that they can have commitment. Two, it, it's the uh, it's the the tale as old as time of yes. the um, the lustful yes. um, bisexual who who um, can't conceive a a monogamous relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you believe that, def- yeah, if you believe this, that means you also think that. Um, uh, that they what not only can't be faithful, but that you're already putting your own bit uh, uh, mentality of jealousy on a relationship that hasn't even formed. You're already putting the thing is is if you're going to date a guy, 
whether they're bi or not, they're going to look at other people they're attracted to. They're going to look. It doesn't matter what gender they are. If they're going to cheat, it doesn't matter if they're bisexual, they're going to cheat. If, if they're going to look, it doesn't matter what their gender is, they're going to look. So are you. And this works the same way with, with any gender. That was just one equation I was throwing out because I happened to notice in a lot of online discussions, that was the one being most discussed. So I want people to understand if you're listening and you're bisexual and you're in a heteronormative relationship, I see you, you are queer, you are no less queer because of your relationship and you're amazing. The amount of like bisexual people who have come into my DMs, not even just uh, bisexual people who are in my DMs and are like, I don't feel the need to express bisexuality because to be honest to explain it to even gay people mm -hmm. it's just easier to say i'm gay because people want the the simplicity of of sex mm -hmm. um and and sexual orientation and and literally to have so many people in my dms who are bisexual and just like yeah i can't um I, I don't really even feel like explaining to people the fact that I'm bisexual and have been bisexual for all my life, but because I typically uh, appear homosexual, um, there's there's uh, markers, there's um, societal markers that would like tick me off as homosexual. Um, you know, I, I can't even be open about my bisexuality to a lot of my my my. Um, gay friends you know and it's just like that's very mm -hmm. telling right bisexual erasure is very real and um very problematic I, I even had a uh, a woman a friend of mine she used to be a client of mine in my jams um asking me if if uh because somebody had told her that to bring up bisexuality was to be actively transphobic and I was like well no that's because then you're also erasing bisexuality. And I, th I think that bisexuality can also partially be a placeholder for pansexuality when maybe sometimes that's what people mean. Um, but I, I know we could sit here and wax pros on, on the differences between bisexuality, pansexuality, most people who are pan can't also even agree on what that means. Um, so yeah, I think we can bring that up when we bring up the God pan. Uh, absolutely. And, and so we, you know, we just, there's a lot of confusion. But this is it, well, it is all spectrum, right? All the, spectrum. Di the difference between gender identity, gender expression, which are separate, sexuality, and sex, mm -hmm. biological sex, right? Yes. And all of those things are all very different, and yet they all play a role as well as societal norms, cultural norms, um, and, and then also subculture, right? All of those things play into queerness. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to bring up two more things before we get into queerness and, and paganism. Uh, I, I just because I wanted to make sure it's 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 brought up, it's part of the alphabet mafia. I don't see it discussed as much. I want to just bring up asexuality and demisexuality. Um, I feel like asexuals, <laughs> no pun intended, seem to kind of get lost in this discussion a lot because someone who is asexual 
can be gay. I mean, you think about that for a second. That only a few years ago was new information to me. Someone who is asexual can, and many are, gay or straight. In fact, asexuality and demisexuality are part of the spectrum. And we say it's part of the spectrum, not that it is one specific thing, because it has lots of varying shades. People who are asexual are not interested in physical sex, but they may be very much interested in relationships, friendships, love, things like that. A demisexual person is someone who is only interested in someone after really getting to know them, getting to know their intellect, getting to know them on a personal level. They won't look at someone and immediately have sexual attraction based off of appearance. They will buy by the person's personality, identity, intellect. Um, that's one of those things that's part of this spectrum that I don't see discussed enough. And as someone who is very gay, who feels attraction to people just by look, I do find myself also being in the position where I can very much look at someone and absolutely know that they are attractive, but I'm not interested in sex with them. I am not interested in a relationship. I know, I, I think I've said this before, like I have no interest in, in a relationship. I can't wait to die alone. And I think that's a beautiful and powerful thing to own. I think many of us, especially if you're in my age group, grew up, or our parents age or older, grew up with this mentality, with, with media, with stories, with fairy tales, with everything that was being thrown at us from this media industrial implex, or, or, or complex <laughs> implex. Um, I did like that word though. Implex. It was, was like, implex. Hmm, is that real? I know, I'm right? like, hmm. <laughs> it, it's all being thrown at us. Love, marriage, nuclear family. That was what I grew up with. So I have been over the past decade rewiring my brain around the spectrum of sexuality. And it's such an amazing process for me to go through because it's helped me be more orientated with how I feel. Not just how everyone else feels, but truly how I feel. I think there are a lot of people out there who, if they focus a little bit more about how they feel, regardless of any societal expectations, fears, family obligations, you might find yourself a little bit more fluid than you're ready to take on because of what has been pressed upon us in a heteronormative society. Going back to asexuality, both of those things, um... Are, are also spectrums too, right? So we have to also remember that there are contingencies, personal contingencies. Mm -hmm. Somebody may identify as asexual and not have um, an appeal to sex all the time, but there may be, you know, contingencies to that or, mm -hmm. or caveats or, you know. Um, and part of that spectrum is recognizing there's a difference between I am choosing with consent to give you my body. And my body is expected to be given because I'm in a relationship. There's a difference there. And I think that's something that sits in a gray area most people aren't really giving a lot of attention to. Being in a relationship does not mean that you owe your body to the person you're in a relationship with. You still choose to make that choice. That's consent. It's yours to give. And All take back. Yeah, absolutely. And also, uh, you know, we have to be, you know, um, 
boundaries go both ways. Like mm-hmm. if you are are in a relationship that way and there's a level of like, no, to be secure in a relationship, we can unpack that certainly, but like to be secure in a relationship, there has to be sex there. Then, I mean, it is also your right to, to walk away with respect mm-hmm. from that relationship. Um, so boundaries, sexuality, gender, gender politics, all of it. It's so confusing. And actually, I've, um, I'm, I'm happy we brought all of these up. We, we haven't even gotten into queer ecology. Um, oh, we haven't? That wasn't what we were discussing? <laughs> no, I think that was really just setting up a framework for queerness. And that's okay. why when people are like, define queerness. And I'm just like, I, I can't without having that. Oh, I thought that was the... Okay, so why don't you explain to me? Because I... I could use a lesson in some queer ecology. Well, I'm not a queer um, ecologist. I'm not a queer ecologist. I do have to give it to um, my friend, Maddie at Hollowed Bones, who's um, uh, given me a lot more information. I mean, this is something that like, I already, I think a lot of us potentially already have a framework in, or we have an understanding of, especially like queers and just knowing, especially queer witches and trying Mm -hmm. to, understand the way that the world works but I I think that um uh Maddie's really helped uh you know send me like resources and things like that because queer ecology really is a uh, a queer theory lens through the eyes of ecological science right and while I often um am like I don't need a materialistic scientific worldview to define my uh belief in in witchcraft and magic I do also um have a dualism between like ecology and and religion and those things especially a I guess if I had to check a box like what would be considered paganism right Mm -hmm. even though I don't define myself that way but that being said we know that science has been used and and data can be used to oh she's got her little shawl now i gotta chill she got a chill bubsy got a chill um it's cute though thank you um pool cover up (laughs) we know that data can be framed to easily erase and has been used to erase queerness um this is even prevalent in in communities that are not white, especially communities that are not white. Um, the erasure of indigenous people, um, the complexities around tribal religion, gender, and and culture, which I can't even like fully get into. But it is complex and has it has a long history, but this is coming from an anthropocentric view, right? A human view. And what I think, um, I think what we are better off doing is, is actually starting to dismantle our, our humanistic centrist view of ourselves, right? Because that's innate in what we do. We want to be the center of everything and we put everything through our shoes when in actuality, we are a part of an ecosystem as, as what, animism would be defined as and I think this that's not the definition of animism but that's part part of my definition of animism excuse me but I think what we are doing is trying to recognize that again 
sex, gender, which we know are two different things, um, are deeply complex. And that is reflected and mirrored in the world around us. Um, mammal, animal, fungal, plant, um, all of these things are vast and spectacular and special and different um, on a cellular level. Uh, eukaryotes and um, the other one that I can't think of because I'm sorry. Uh, uh, no, uh, one single celled organisms and multi celled organisms. That's part um, in amoeba is in that group. Um, regardless, I haven't taken a, um, a, bio, a biology class um, in probably like eight years. But um, my point being is that the world is vast and complex and does not exist in the binary of male and female. Um, that occurs, but it, that's not solely true. And then you're only looking at things through the lens of biological sex, which is precarious or, or, or dangerous even because we're still leaving out a big portion of the equation, which is gender expression, gender ex, um, identity and societal norms. And all of this is framing queer ecology and also queer theory. Again, it is, um, gender politics, uh, politics as, in, as a whole, right? Sexuality, uh, gender, gender expression, sexual orientation, sex, um, and as well as like the, the way that our society has placed a lot of these normalcies on us, the disruption of these normalcies. Um, so I, I urge people to, to study um, queer ecology, I, or at least, you know, read articles on it or allow ourselves to, um, because I am by no means an expert and had only like relatively recently started um, getting into some meaty bits, like some actual articles and academic things. Um, even though this is part of the, the worldview that I've held. So some of it is very reinforcing and also some of it is very challenging in the way that like it makes me question some of my own perceptions of the world, right? So it's complex. And yeah, that, that was my spiel on queer, queer ecology because I can't give any like anything more than, than that uh, because I am not a queer ecologist. What stands out to me from that statement that I find most interesting, if you remove historically the aspect of the patriarchy from human nature altogether, all of a sudden that queerness becomes extremely obvious. You start to see how when you remove the political nature of a single sex dominating the majority of, of human development, you really start seeing how the spectrum of gender and identity and, and, and politics would be different if the patriarchy were removed. Does that make sense? Or do you think that's just complete um, uh, post 
conjecture. <laughs> no, no, no. I think that I think you're right. I do think that I mean queer theory would also perhaps poke holes in in matriarchy as well, mm-hmm. which I think that's um, just it's is very frustrating. Just another side of that binary system. If you right. only have one or the other. In one thought, right? But I also heard something really interesting the other day Please. from um, a part of of queer ecology that uh, God, I, I wish I, I had saved it and remembered who said it. Um, essentially, it is like there are only um, there is only one gender, and it is man or or, or patriarchal, right? And everything that is other than that is the opposing gender, and that includes women, trans people, non-binary people. And uh, obviously, this isn't, it's not a a flex of bioessentialism. That's not the point of Mm -hmm. the of the quote. The quote is to um, recognize that that um, societal structure a societal structure in which the patriarchy is upheld, mm-hmm. um, nothing else can exist, right? Um, so that I think is an interesting lens to perhaps observe it few, uh, through because we do know that sometimes matriarchal structures, um, you know, there is a lot more breadth for for uh, queerness, non-binary people. We know that in many tribal structures in indigenous Europe as well, oftentimes in indigenous America too. I don't want to speak on particular groups um, because that's not my place, but I will, like we know that there is a spiritual exaltation to what we would consider non-binary individuals Mm -hmm. or um, if we're looking at it through um, an American lens, oftentimes uh, two-spirit, which is a, a placeholder for individual terminologies based on tribal beliefs, right? Or based mm-hmm. on like tribal language, um, which is individual to that tribe. Yeah. So again, this gets very complex, but there is spiritual authority that many of these groups had. Um, I urge people to listen to the Trans Folk Witches podcast about, um, uh, I think it's titled, uh, soul flight trans people invented it or something like that um where it goes into the complexities around like transness and um i will forever forget the the particular area of reconstructionism but it's it's not mesopotamian it's it's babylonian sumerian sumerian reconstructionism thank you um uh i believe uh, i could be wrong She'll correct me later, um, <laughs> if I am. Um, uh, for some reason, I can never remember exactly what it is. Uh, but, but essentially, like, there is a level of, like, intrinsic transness for, for priests to certain deities that has to, to um, that people are innately born with and then um, go through a lot of these different uh, rituals and including, like, um, castration and things like that. All of that is to say that we also have a spiritual exaltation for most people who are um, who are queer, who are non-binary, who are trans, and who do not, who either exist between the gender binary or even outside of the gender binary. And I think now we can, now that we've set that up, we can also talk about paganism and, yes. and where that that falls into um yeah 
yeah, I think that's a, that's a great segue because we're we're moving from definitions to understandings to uh, queerness throughout history and <clears throat> in, a, in an ecological standpoint. But now let's let's get into <laughs> let's get into some paganism here because of course this is a queer witches podcast and I have put together. Um, a extremely limited list. Please understand this list is very limited. It's just a few examples of um, a lot of pagan gods and goddesses in, in several different majoritively well-known pantheons that have a examples of queerness. I'll say mostly the pantheon that we're pulling from um, is going to be um, like a Greek kind of Hellenistic mm -hmm. uh, a pantheon so and do bear with us in the fact that like again my background is is um, in American witchcraft mm -hmm. um, with a little bit of like at one point in time I did um, try doing uh, Hellenistic reconstructionism and it, that was messy and I always broke the rules and was very bad at it and and Marshall, you know, th this is a, a very well-known and documented like mm -hmm. set of mythos is, is Greco-Roman and, and some um, late stage Egyptian stuff. So mm -hmm. we're going to be talking mostly about that. It's not to leave anybody's personal religions out um, or personal worldviews. I think we also have like maybe a little bit of, of Norse stuff. Mm -hmm. But yeah, uh, disclaimers yeah, we, on yeah. disclaimers. <laughs> we wanted to make a whole, we, we wanted to give you all of them. This podcast would be five hours long and even I don't have that time. <laughs> right, or, or the uh, the language and uh, understanding of yes. individual culture, right? Yes, so this is where you're gonna see a lot of those going back in time and placing modern pieces of language on situations and 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 mytho mythological gods and goddesses. Um, <clears throat> And I think it probably best to start with the first. Uh, let's start with Zeus. Zeus uh, had multiple mythological uh, stories that specifically focused on whether that was changing gender or whether that was many bits of philandry. We all know that he liked to sleep around. Basically, if there was a human being on Earth who Zeus wanted to sleep with, Zeus was going to sleep with them. And that is that is the way it is written, mostly through the lens of, of male historians who have documented these myths and somewhat recreated them through translation and patriarchal worldview. Just throwing that out there so it's understood. Um, but at one point, a Zeus changed to Athena to sleep with Callisto. Callisto, who had sworn off all men, and actually, we're going to get to Callisto here in a second, too. But he literally changed his gender just to sleep with another woman. Again, good example of Philandry. Let's talk about Apollo. Apollo, Apollo and the Macedonian prince Hyacinthos was killed by a flying disc uh, during a tournament and turned into the highest in the flower to keep him from going to the underworld. Apollo so loved his lover that he changed him into the highest in the flower because he never wanted to be without his beautiful face again. So by turning him into the hyacinth, which is now officially kind of a, a, a Greek flower known, it's not a Greek flower, but it's a flower known in the Greek Isles as a flower symbolizing homosexuality because their love was so strong, he refused to let Hades take his soul and trapped him here on earth as the forever blooming beautiful flower. 
Um, I, I question, I wonder, um, cause I, clearly I can't read our brief. So sorry. <laughs> there is another one. I don't know if you have this one on here. Um, Kaiparisos or uh, Cyprus. Cypresses. No, I don't have Cyprus, and I have Cyprus growing in my yard. Um, so uh, another myth, also a youth, um, which Apollo is uh, very famous for doing, um, or for for beloving, um, is is uh, Cyprus, uh, which is um, Cyprus, and uh, the youth had a deer that was given to him by Apollo as like a, a pet essentially and uh, Apollo being Apollo and many of his mythos um, fucks things up and accidentally kills something. I don't know why, but that's just kind of his, his problem is that he loves to kill the things that he loves um, or has created. And uh, Cyprus is so forlorn over this deer that he dies and um, Apollo is very distraught by this. So um, to immortalize him has made uh, the Cypress tree. And this is where um, one of the myths originating of, of, of the Cypress as being the tree of the dead or oh, a wow. tree of mourning comes from. There's other myths too surrounding that, but that's just one of them. We also have Loki. Loki is the trickster, the Norse trickster god. Um, there's so much that can go into Loki. Uh, I, I don't have time for that right now, but one of the things that needs to be understood historically, he was a shapeshifter. He changed shape many times into man, into woman, into animal, um, and, and, and pretty much every form Loki could change into and has known to, to do this to have whether that was for trickster reasons or to have sexual relationships with man woman or animal like it, it all exists Loki is is a symbol of that when I say trickster it's not specifically meant to be a bad thing but more so a fluid and ever-changing and you think you know but you don't know mentality. Most people think of trickster gods nowadays and they think of someone who is looking to pay a, play a trick on you. That's not quite the case. That's not what it always meant. And I think that needs to be understood when talking about trickster gods. It's more about an example of being cunning than it is an example of being uh, bamboozled, if that makes sense. Yeah, or mercurial. Yes, um, and in fact, we're about to get to Mercury for Hermes. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I do think that um, real quick, and I know we already gave disclaimers, but clearly there's there are people who are more knowledgeable about mm -hmm. um, the language of of uh, the Norse or like Norse languages, um, as well as like people who practice and study these religions that could perhaps uh, frame this in a better lens. But this is a, the, again, we're just giving brief. Brief. putting these things out yes. there they're just examples of people to see historically that queerness has always existed in paganism and again one of the things people in witchcraft community need to understand is paganism is not witchcraft right witchcraft because we're not, gonna get into witchcraft later we are we're actually just getting into paganism because most people need to understand that historical paganism has shaped modern neo-paganism. They're not the same thing, but it has shaped our understanding of what ancient paganism was. And if people are unaware of these things that existed in, in actual mythology, 
how are they going to understand how it shapes their modern neo-paganism? So let's get into Hermes. Hermes was also known as Mercury, was at the messenger god, had many male lovers. Some must even claim it was Hermes who turned the prince uh, of Macedonia into a flower, uh, Hyacinth. I think that came later, or that might have been a, re a reinterpretation in Roman myth, because Romans love to slightly twist and bastardize some of the original Greek myths. Um, but Hermes was a messenger god from 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 going to the underworld, going to Mount Olympus. He was the original messenger of above and below. So the type of relationships that Hermes would have, gender did not play a role in this whatsoever. And there were many stories and examples of male relate male and male relationships that he had. Ooh, let's get into Pan. Pan was a god of the wild. He frequently chased men, women, and <laughs> was pretty much depicted as always erect and ready for sex, but not just men and women, also nymphs, also demigods, also animals. He was called Pan and, and the god or the demigod of the wild and the wild because he represented that frenzy, that craze, that sexual desire. He represented a lot of these different types of, of concepts that fit under the umbrella term of wild. And so we have a lot of these stories. We have a lot of history of him being part of, you know, major ecstatic orgies and, and frivolity and parties. And then of course, that's where we get into Dionysus as well, who frequently visited parties at Dionysus. And Dionysus was also known to sleep with many different types of people, men and women, um, and some even, believe that he is a god of gender fluidity and intersex because there have been many depictions of Dionysus as both male and female historically known for uh, male lovers like uh, Adon Adonis, the handsome Adonis who is also uh, a lover of Aphrodite and Ampelos, who was a satyr turned into the grapevine constellation. So there's literally a constellation in the sky named after this satyr who was a lover of Dionysus. And you can still see that constellation today. I think too, um, there's a lot of overlap between like Pan and Priapus, who um, yes. Priapus is, is typically depicted with like a giant dick um, that's always uh, erect. Um, but that's, that's a, a different different myths for a different time yeah <laughs> um well interestingly enough so here's we get into some that I, I'd like to discuss more um hermaphroditus uh, was perhaps the earliest literary reference to an intersex person it concerns the child of Hermes and the love goddess Aphrodite who as a youth countered the nymph Salmasis who attempted to seduce the youth and asked the gods that their forms be permanently joined. The creature of both sexes was frequently depicted in classical art as a figure with womanly breasts and womanly form, but with male genitalia. So we have this oldest depiction uh, of, a, of a, a Greek mythos that involved the child of, of two gods coming together, falling in love with someone and then merging their bodies together, creating this half male, half female depiction. And that's where we get the term hermaphrodite from. That's where we understand intersex uh, uh, mythologically has been explained in, in the Greek mythos. So queerness has existed not only in 
sexual relationships, but also specifically in how we present in body. And I think that's one of the things most people aren't discussing very much, uh, being intersex. Well, intersexuality has unfortunately always been medically erased, yes, um, scientifically erased, uh, and uh, there's a lot of complexities there that I don't know if I would be qualified to speak on, um, but intersexuality, unfortunately, has like is is the always has been medically. Um, medically and, and and therefore in culture has always been erased as well as always being um, a problem and um, it's it's typically actually not problematic at all um, medically speaking unfortunately this also gets into the term of like the complexities surrounding like the archaic term like hermaphrodite or um, where we would say intersex now when talking about um, a person who is intersex because when and and it's weird people still cleave to like oh maybe there is a third gender and it's hermaphrodites and that is unfortunately archaic so please don't say it it's also offensive um, in terms of when we're talking about human beings um, but also it's a lot more complex than than just the the placeholder third um, sex uh, sex right when we have like male female and then other right mm-hmm. and and it's it's a lot more complex than that. Um, Thank you for saying that. I actually did not know that that word in itself is considered in modern day a a slur or a, a, a derogatory term. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it gets into a lot of like um, again medical erasure, mm-hmm. discrimination, discrimination, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's a thing where people are like, oh, only one percent of the population is intersex. Right. We know that it's actually a, a lot more. It's just again medical erasure um but then also like people understand when we say medical erasure i mean that literally it was the we mean that it was the doctor's prerogative to make the parents pick a gender upon birth and then surgically alter them right or that gender or or hide um and keep it sealed from the parents and this is still going on so this isn't something that has happened in the long distance past i mean this is still something that's going on i believe john hopkins medical center is a big um is is caught up in a lot of um intersex problems right now in terms of like people being like hey uh maybe release your medical records let's let's talk come down out of your ivory towers um well, let's keep going with Callisto because we brought up her with Zeus and I think that would be a good segue. What do you think? Absolutely. Um, Callisto, she was a nymph and a follower of Artemis, took a vow to remain a virgin and could not be tempted even by Zeus, at least in male form because Zeus, as we know, changed his form. Uh, I said Athena earlier, I apologize, I meant Artemis. Um, But when Zeus disguised himself as Artemis, she was lured into the goddess's embrace. Hezoid wrote that after the tryst was discovered, Callisto was turned into a bear before she gave birth to the sun, Arcus. Callisto and Arcus were later put in the stars as the constellation Ursa Major and Ursa Minor. Well, let's get into Artemis. Artemis was the twin sister to Apollo. The goddess was uh, 
by differing accounts, a nearly asexual virgin or a lesbian, at least that's a, again, a very modern terminology being placed on, on a figure in a mythos, uh, and many had many nymph lovers, uh, including Serene at Atala Atalanta. I really should have read a lot of these and like sound them out phonetically in advance. That's okay. That's mm -hmm. okay. Um, there are there are multiple uh, mythos of her having uh, lovers, but most of them were all female, which I, I find fascinating. I think it's um, Anticlesia. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, by some accounts, uh, she was also Callisto's lover. But I actually love the concept of Diana and and Artemis, who it's the Roman or Greek versions of the same figure, basically. I have actually found myself very drawn to this person because when I was younger, I saw this person as defying gender norms when I would read uh, the old book of Buckland's mythology. She defied societal expectations. She went off into the woods and she said, fuck y'all, I'm cutting my hair. I'm going to go hunt with um, uh, some of my deer and I am going to go swear off of men because fuck all men. And I'm just going to go be in the woods under the moon. And I loved this concept. I loved this this energy and I kind of identified with it as a queer person because I was very much um, fuck all gender concepts of what is expected of me. And here I am now uh, taking on many male lovers and refusing to settle down and wanting to live in the forest with fuck all on the moon. <laughs> it. Um, I'm glad you brought up that point about like uh, Artemis still taking on lovers because so many people will apply the terminology virgin mm -hmm. um, and think that it's a like uh, like I'm an independent woman and I don't need no man kind of thing and it, that's not really quite the case in mythos it's it has a lot to do like we know that like virginity is actually linked to marriage when we're talking about it in antiquity mm -hmm. um, because sexual purity quote unquote is is relatively modern and uh is a byproduct of puritanical christendom and well like there's some medieval christianity stuff there too but um we know that like artemis is 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 probably or is having sex with with many people um and many genders the the virginity is is meaning she is not being wed to anybody she is not locked down um by a again patriarchal society because ancient greece is still a patriarchal society mm -hmm. um just to I note on that yes i want to get to isis because i actually really enjoyed this story so isis was an egyptian goddess and she was also worshipped by the greeks remember this is literally just across the mediterranean sea um, she is known for solving gender identity issues. And that's something that I think most people aren't aware of is that Isis had a history of being prayed to to help with gender dysphoria and gender identity issues. So um, Iphis, not Isis, Iphis was born female but raised male by his mother who concealed the truth because her husband wanted a male heir. Ultimately, Iphis fell in love with Lanthe, a woman, and was betrothed to her. Before the wedding, Iphis prayed in the temple of Isis for a solution, and voila, Isis granted her his wish and made her a hymn. Now, I think it's really important for people to recognize that, again, this is a really great example of going back in time and applying modern concepts of understanding on transness to ancient stories. 
And lastly, let's get into Orpheus. Orpheus was the legendary poet and musician, may best be known for the story and journey into the underworld to retrieve his wife, who he loved so dearly, but then was told, if you look at her before making your way all the way back up, you will never get to see her again. And he couldn't help himself, he looked. So then he was like, well, fuck, now I'm above ground. I went to hell to get my wife. I fucked up, left her behind. What's a man to do? I'll just sleep with other men. But so many other women were so upset with him that he rebuffed them that during an orgy, they killed him. So not a super happy story, but still a queer one. Well, let's talk about gender in medieval Europe. And I think this is interesting because this is where we start seeing a lot of hermetic philosophy weaving its way into what one day becomes uh, uh, modern occultism and the occult revival in the late 1800s. Yeah, I think too, I know you are going to frame this later um, and, and talk about it a little more, but mm-hmm. I think too, it's it's good to understand that like queer ecology does not start, it, 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 it didn't like suddenly we had ancient peoples who, um, at least in, in Greek and Rome, and then, you know, Rome colonized uh, the British Isles, and then suddenly we have Catholicism, and then um, gender gets erased for hundreds of years, or I'm sorry, gender gets placed in a binary for thousands of years until like 2020, and suddenly we have discussion of, of non-binary people and, and things like that. Um, that's not how it worked. We still have in medieval times, um, people who are writing in their diaries and being like, I do not feel at home um, in myself, basically being like, uh, there is, there's a lot of context around like being like, I am having like a sense of gender dysphoria. Um, And so that's only like a very, humanistic, very, you know, regular person way of viewing things. But we also have a little bit of uh, a hermetic philosophy that's coming in, mm-hmm. particularly with alchemy, um, because again, this is a podcast on magic. So we couldn't not bring up alchemy. Of course. Um, we have the duality of, of the divine masculine and the divine feminine. And also the divine androgyne. Um, which is in an alchemical process of when you're separating, you know, the mercury, the salt, and the sulfur. Um, The salt, I believe, being the body, the mercury being the soul, and then the sulfur. Being the mind? I think, yeah. Yeah, also a lot of like- I'm not an alchemist. I just understand some of the the energy structures. Neither am I. The equations. Especially especially like now that alchemy has got turned into like this psychological process, um, which is weird within the past like couple of years. Um, When when I talk to people who are like, oh, I'm an alchemist and I'm like, oh, really? So I'm imagining they have like a laboratory at home. They're like, oh no, nothing like that. And I'm like, oh. I I transmute negative energy that that I, it's not meant to be dismissive. It's just, I do know people who are actual lab alchemists and they're like, no, I I can distill a like humors out of 
you know, leaves and stuff, um, which I find very interesting. So, um, yeah. Yeah. That, well, yeah. I would like to share a little bit about, because we're going to get into divine feminine, divine masculine, divine androgyne in the alchemical equation. And then later on, when we discuss the occult resurgence in the late 1800s, how it gets conflated with Blavatsky's interpretation of divine feminine, divine masculine from the East. And I think that's where a lot of gender essentialism starts to peek its way in. So I want to get, and I know we've talked about this in the Witch Queen and the Witch King episodes. Um, I, I may have brought this up in another another discussion point. I've posted about it before. Um, if it's okay with you, I'd like to share a little bit about this understanding of the alchemical equation. Um, is that all right with you? Yeah. Perfect. So um, in alchemy, there is a very specific equation called the alchemical marriage. And the idea is the divine feminine and the divine masculine coming together in this equation to equal the divine androgyne. And we see this a lot in a lot of uh, uh, medieval art depictions. Yes, that's one of, there's so many different beautiful art depictions. There's modern day ones, there's medieval ones. But what we see, because alchemy is done with so much symbolism, we see the moon coming together with the sun to create a smash of of giving birth to this this ultimate perfect being and so it's called the 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 rebus the alchemical rebus yes the alchemical rebus this divine androgyne so you have the divine feminine representing the pull the moon fluidity to dissolve and then you have the divine masculine which represents the push the sun the steadfastness the rigidity and to coagulate and i think it's very interesting because when you look at the baphomet you see pointing up and pointing down. You see to solve and to coagula. You see half man, half woman. You see half animal, half human. And in my opinion, and we're gonna get into the bathman even, <laughs> even a little bit later too, but I actually see a very similar representation within that symbolism because together what they do in this equation is to create the divine androgyne, the androgyne representing the alchemical equation of these two forces coming together to combine into a perfect result, carrying both aspects of each force. Now, this is just my opinion um, because we are about to get into modern interpretations, but for me, I do carry this type of, of concept within my practice and my craft, not because I believe they have anything to do with gender whatsoever, but because all of these things exist within us as humans, as human beings, we carry forth all of this type of energy within us. And for me, my practice is about the combination and then bringing out the divine androgyne. I, in my goal, and my personal body of alchemy, if we will, if we will the divine feminism and, and masculine natures of myself, they are not being represented by two different genders. They're, they're representations of me as a person. And finding that pride within my own quote unquote divine androgyne was where I felt the spark of my queerness and my magic and my craft and, and everything that makes me proud of who I am and who I am lives, if that makes sense. When I was very young, 
I had a really hard time. And we've talked about this before. I had a really hard time with my personal femininity. I was a young little girly boy, if you will. And I remember having multiple instances where my dad would try to toughen me up. He tried to make me do sports. I wasn't allowed to play with anything that was pink or frilly or Barbies. I cried if we went to McDonald's and I got <laughs> the race car Hot Wheels toy in the in the Happy Meal instead of the Barbie toy. Barbie was my first client. I knew that if I wanted to do the things that gave me joy, I had to hide them. So when I found witchcraft, when I found Wicca, I'm not Wiccan anymore, obviously, but when I found it at a very young age, 12, going on 13, I was going through so many of these struggles, being told that my femininity, the thing that I was so intrinsically happiest as, was bad and needed to be hidden in a heteronormal society. So finding Wicca, which at the time in the 90s was very goddess-heavy, goddess-based, it was my solace. It was the first spiritual experience that involved something other than a male-dominated church telling me I was wrong for being who I was. So I say all this for people to understand. If you're coming at this conversation already sick of hearing the words divine feminine and divine masculine because many of us are and I totally understand that I want you to see how many different perspectives can make up someone who chooses to include the divine feminine in their practice because it has touched them on such a deeply personal level I'm one of those people and I don't think it represents gender I think it represents a part of me and it's become a part of me that I believe that I am very proud of um, and I Funny enough, I had to go through a part of myself much later in life that had to unpack a lot of toxic masculinity because I was so anti-masculinity, I went so far the other direction that all masculinity became toxic. And it wasn't until my late 20s, early 30s that I had to kind of unpack that myself. And that to me was my personal awakening within becoming more comfortable with my divine masculinity. And again, these aren't genders, these are parts of myself. And these, these are parts of me that I believe are, you know, they're part of my shadow work. They're helping me come together into being a more whole person and, and coming together that transmutation that to me, that was my alchemy. That was me birthing the alchemical child. Sorry, the androgyne child. <laughs> yeah. Or the rebus or, or whatever um, yes. you want to, to, to describe it as my, personal understandings of it are like I know we have overlaps and I, I think that that's valuable I'm glad mm -hmm. that you um you get something from from both of those things and I, I I'm sure we have a lot more overlaps in our the way that we view it um but also I, I have um personal uh complications with with the terms of like um inside you there are two wolves masculine one's masculine <laughs> one's feminine and they they come together right and and to me does does not all things um that exist because when we start saying that and i know you are in when you're talking about that you're mostly talking about like a force of push and a force of pull mm -hmm. um or absorption and, and penetration right but i think a lot of the sun <laughs> right 
but even in like Orphic myth, we have things that say, or uh, Orphic hymns, we have like when describing the moon is, is often seen as like feminine, right? But when we look at like, um, I believe um, Nordic uh, belief, and I could also be wrong, I could be totally bullshitting that, um, you know, the, the, there it's reverse. The sun is seen as feminine and the, the moon is seen as masculine. Mm -hmm. Um, but we also have like in Orphic hymns, we have, when we talk about, um, the moon and, um, Venus also, I believe, even though that's a little not expressly stated, but in the moon, the planetary, um, hymn to the moon includes like both male and female, um, so duly you entwine, I think. Uh, I've said that Orphic hymn a million times. I should know it memorized off the top of my head by now, but I can't. And uh, personally, I think that's because I don't see divine feminine masculine as gendered. And this is my personal viewpoint, of course. So saying that the moon is feminine, that does not gender the moon whatsoever. Right. That's one of the things I think that that gets misinterpreted. And maybe it's just due to a lack of using the best and most up-to-date language because we are using older terminologies. Right. Maybe not even that it's misinterpreted, but more so like um, we can look at it through a, a, a lens with a different meaning. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not, yeah. And that's not to say that anybody's right or wrong. It's just, yeah. we have, you know, complexities of like how we, we view things because for me, it's, it's like, does, does everything that, um we boil down to get placed onto like oh i'm 75% masculine and and 25% feminine feminine you know the quantifications which i we already know I, I don't need things to be quantified right so that i guess that's perhaps where i have an issue with like um divine mask and femme kind of thing is because well uh, like it, it always seems to come down to, to some sort of quantification of, of half and half or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore does nothing that, that a man does, quote unquote, if we're viewing it from this patriarchal lens, if a man is cooking, right, then that, that, that gets into like some, some bioessentialism, but that's a, a feminine trait. So then we take that on upon ourselves. If that's making sense, I feel like I'm rambling and going in 30 different directions. No, I think you're recreate, you're, you're talking about a lot of the discussion that happens around this topic, because there have been a lot of people coming forward from a non-binary standpoint who have a really big problem with the way that this information has not just been interpreted, but the way it gets applied. That's where things become, I, I, I think, really, really problematic. And I'm glad you're, I don't think it's a ramble at all, because I think you're, you're, you're quoting a lot of discussions that are happening around this topic. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. it, our, our listeners may be like, oh my god, does she ever shut up? But <laughs> um, I like but to I not think about it as two halves within me. I like to think about it as as more two energies that are in a constant dance with each other. They're in a constant spiral. Um, not to be too Starhawk and spiral dance about it, but like I, and I've said this before in the past, I very much envision these forces as the physical and non-physical. So that's where it kind of breaks down for me and the witch king and the witch queen, or say the, 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 
the devil and the lady of other. You get this concept of something that is solid and something that can't be grasped or touched. So for me, I don't see them as two halves that are equal that just coexist within me as much as I see as two parts of things that are already part of each other. They are intertwined. It is, it is the electrons and the protons within an atom, if that makes sense. And I am the atom. And they're always dancing and bouncing with each other and making movement. And, and that's where we get, in my opinion, this is just getting into spiritual dogma now, reality. That's where reality kind of comes into existence, in my opinion. Does that make sense? That almost makes yeah. it a little bit more cosmic if you will yeah no well i think it's it's getting into your own like personal theologies yes, which is, theology. is is good i know um the idea of um <laughs> bioessentialism or gender essentialism um comes into the interpretation of the occult revival with um you know the the oto and the golden dawn um a lot of these come from Blavatsky, uh, who was known for, we can say inventing theosophy. Yes. Um, because Blavatsky is, is unfortunately not intentionally doing so, mm-hmm. but it is really framing, I mean, she's a, a, a white scholar who's, who's pulling from some sort of like anthropology and and, mostly eastern traditions bringing them to the west right and boiling and reducing and conflating these these terms and um the complications that anthropology has which is um you are not a a part of that culture so you will never fully be able to write about that culture in its wholeness because you're an outsider looking in right missing um, and, all the context and you're missing a lot of the context even by that point uh which is quite the point of anthropology yes. is to be objective and just so people understand it's important if you don't know who blavatsky is um her name was helena petrova blavatsky she was a uh, uh, believe was it russian or she basically invented theosophy she came over she she is she came over here towards the West, bringing with and publishing a lot of information that involved um, dissecting a lot of Eastern spiritualities. The thing is, is because she, while she is in Russia, and I guess she's technically towards the East, she was not immersed within a lot of these spiritualities, these teachings, these concepts, and, and very much, in my opinion, in many occultist opinions, bastardized and oversimplified a huge portion of many of these Eastern teachings, which included the Ayurvedic understanding of the divine feminine and divine masculine, the, the, um, the Hindu breakdown of these energies that existed within a belief system that she's then stripped of their cultural context to teach it in the West. This is where many aspects of New Ageism comes from. This is where the idea of star seeds come from. This is where the idea of root races, root races. come from. Yes. And, and that, that should already be like... Um you know, Issues. perhaps a, a, a warning <laughs> sign that like we're getting into some, you know, uh, <laughs> sorry it's, to burst, sorry to burst everybody's bubble, but everything on like Gaia and stuff, it's, it really is a, uh, maybe people won't like that I say this, but it, it is a, a pathway into 
fascism and and like white supremacy and i know like maybe some people listening to this are like oh well i listen to that and i'm not or like i watch guy and blah 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 well maybe you're not seeing it but a lot of us are <laughs> yeah and i don't want to get like too soapboxy because um i was a member of gaia i watched a bunch of those things years ago i know what you're talking about and the thing is is when i was watching it i did not understand the words that you're saying right now because it wasn't blatant it wasn't obvious i mm-hmm. didn't understand that the t- terminology of star seeds came from a root race theory shared by Bavatsky. This is the same person whose information then went on to spur uh, literal Nazis to say, went on to spur a lot of the breakoff and a lot of uh, Nordic white supremacist groups. Um, this is the information, while she didn't mean to be the caveat of, of this information that then was bastardized and, and twisted into all these things. When you say, I'm a star seed, I don't think you understand that what you're saying comes from a concept that literally broke down the human races. And when I say races, I don't mean ethnicologies, I mean skin colors into alien beings and alien races leveled off by, by categories of intelligence and strength. So most this of play, us this plays all into like light language this yes. plays into um ascension ascension theories which mm-hmm. goes into um plays into uh, attraction it plays into laws of attraction but it also plays into uh like uh, clean culture cleanliness culture cleanliness culture which also goes into eugenics um they're not it, it it's just wrapped up in a lot of things that i'm just like uh i wish more people because it is intentionally quite subversive in in those new age spheres the point because they're not trying to obviously uh jump right out and and roll out the the red carpet for for uh the pathway to white supremacy but unfortunately a lot of these things are are rooted in like not only ideological and and um like spiritual interpretations of modern things that are like completely new and make no sense like i.e light language is something that in from what i've gathered completely just came from tiktok and is just so everyone knows, like it's it's complete bullshit. Um, nobody is is talking to uh, aliens while while spouting out fake glossolalia and pretending to be in a trance state, which they're not even doing um, while they're on a phone and and talking to you. That's that's unfortunately not how that works. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and this is where you get a lot of our our issues with the New Age community pushing this entire toxic love and light mentality because if you are to bring up the issues with um white supremacy if you're to bring up the issues of people being treated uh, unfairly and and poorly if you're to bring up the issues of um queer genocide if you're to bring up any of those things you are giving your attention to negative entities 
You need to stop thinking about that. The more attention you give to it, the more you invite into your life. And I, I come to you saying this as someone who was at an actual Abraham seminar when someone asked, I'm fighting for my rights for gay marriage, but it's illegal um, or, or it has been in my state. What, um, what am I supposed to do? What does Abraham have to say about that? And the response was, stop paying attention to it. If you yeah, don't worry about giving, it. Yeah, don't worry about it. If you, the more you give your attention to your marriage being considered illegal, the more illegal and the longer this will last. You need to stop giving it attention. And I want you to think about what that means for a second, because I know we're going a little bit off of a tangent, but I think it's important when bringing up theosophy, how it colored gender essentialism, you have to understand the bigger picture that it's part of. And this bigger picture that it's part of, as an example, would be telling me, don't vote don't care what your politicians are doing or saying don't care about people that are protesting don't care about people that are being murdered because of the color of their skin or because of who they love or how they identify or how they present don't give any attention to that because you're inviting more of that negativity into your life and it is so individualistic that it makes you stop caring about your community it makes you stop giving any attention and being the change we need to be to make change happen if you stop voting if you stop paying attention to your politicians which many people in this community have been starting to do because they don't believe witchcraft is political they don't believe that you're quote unquote in the vortex if you're paying attention to this if you think that spirituality is apolitical not only you're not paying attention not only are you wrong you are part of the oppression and you are uplifting the oppressors because you're giving them the platform to have the freedom to do away with us so now that i've settled that on my soapbox, so soapbox but also i i know i think this is uh i feel like firstly i feel like we haven't had a soapboxing moment in a while mm -hmm. but also like this is important to to I think remind firstly take a stance on where we are um because we're not new agers um here in this in this world view not on this podcast not during my pride month <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's important to also like maybe remind people gently but I I also unfortunately sometimes you have to like say it quite loudly that um guy is a scam and most most things that uh involve like new age philosophies are are scams so and usually are are um if a a long way maybe maybe not maybe not in the beginning maybe not when you first start into it again we know that fascism indoctrinates people slowly it grooms people into believing it so maybe it will take a while to get to that point but we know that a lot of these things um goes into to eugenics and and yeah so new ageism is an mlm i'll tell you, I'll say that right now <laughs> it's a multi-media marketing company but let's okay so let's get back on track here for a second because um we've gotten into understanding how theosophy has played a role into because Blavatsky's work played such a huge intrinsical role into the OTO, the uh, Ordo Temple Ordis, the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor, the Golden Dawn these are major um organizations that uh, you know, Crowley was very involved in several of them. This is during the late 1800s when a lot of Blavatsky's work has made its way um, 
from where she was in the East into uh, Europe, over to Britain, uh, slowly over to America, where a lot of these organizations in, in Europe and Britain were taking hold, we start to see these secret societies of occult brotherhoods start to pop up. And originally, you know, no women were allowed. And in fact, the only time women were allowed was to make them a piece of the working right. And eventually that changed over time, but you have to understand these things again were brought up not only under a patriarchy, but under a patriarchy within a patriarchy that then create a hierarchy of more men who would then design entire uh, uh, occult-based systems that objectified women. And I don't say objectifies in like, oh, look at her body, look at her curves. I mean, made them into an object, a straight up object to be used within a ritual or rite as a representative of the female form, of a goddess, of Babylon, of, of whatever they were working with within their occult sphere. So as that changed, as that grew, you know, we see how this evolves through time. We see how um, as, as a, uh, uh, Crowley got older, we do know there was a meeting point in time when he actually then uh, uh, initiated Gardner into the OTO, who really didn't care very much about being part of that organization or spearheading it, but he did learn a lot, at least enough from Crowley, and then eventually the people from, say, New Forest Coven in, in is it New, yeah, New Forest Coven in England, and put together what eventually became understood as Gardnerian Wicca. And many parts of these, modern-day Wicca, of course, is not considered a fertility cult, but back when, Gardner very much did see it somewhat within this mindset, this system, this practice and setup of, of, of being about fertility. You have the the Lord and the Lady, the God and the Goddess, and they are set up in the same sort of identity of, of the Goddess, who then has her consort, who then she begets a child with. The consort dies and she gives birth to them uh, again in, in, in one of the Sabbaths. So you have to understand, you see this ecology through time change from an idea within alchemy, to then in the 1800s, Blavatsky bringing over the Eastern culture ideas that then get bastardized through the patriarchy and to objectifying men and women as, as not just energies, but tools to be used in, in occultism. And then we see that continued forward in, in some of the early Wicca uh, with the Lord and the Lady. And we see these things with the Great Rite which involves simulated and sometimes depending on whatever group you're in, actual ritual sex between a male and a female to, to create this type of um, ceremony, if you will. Many times it's just simulated. Many times sex isn't even happening. It's literally a simulation of taking on roles and going through a ceremony or a ritual. Um, but these but roles- also, But also in-, in, in uh initiatory traditions like wicca like you wouldn't know like we wouldn't know we wouldn't know i'm not until until you you are um initiated into it so and if you ask any any modern gardnerian wiccan they will tell you flat out sex is not required whatsoever to be initiated but one of the things that needs to be understood is many of these original covens and even covens nowadays sometimes still will stand firmly in a structure 
that involves uh, binary gender. Some have very much evolved, some stand firm. So we can see how it has been through time modernized and, and, and changed. And I don't wanna say bastardized because that's not exactly what happened. What we see is several concepts through time come together and then <laughs> through the patriarchal lens pushed into a specific viewpoint. And, and that kind of takes us to today. We're moving into basically how we apply some of this non, this, these like disrupting gender duality in witchcraft, but there are also other, um, I know Marshall, you had brought up some here, such as um, Baphomet, mm -hmm. but also like Baphomet isn't traditionally worshiped. I think now, yeah, but like- Oh, I mean modern now. I'm talking about specifically how we interpret the concept of the Baphomet now. Oh. I know the Baphomet itself has a long history with between uh, its original uh, Like it's a up. depiction. I know like, yes. like, I always wondered why people like worship this um, spirit. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not a spirit. It's it, it's literally just it's a it's an illustration. It's a drawing. Um, I don't think it's worship. I think it's I think it's a depiction of a symbol. In my opinion, I I've seen people like placing it on altars and things like that. Well, uh, and sure. obviously, there's like like the satanic temple mm -hmm. uses this um, like the Baphomet symbol. For those who aren't familiar with the origins of it. Um, Eliphas Levy was a magician and and uh, drew it out um, to basically depict like the duality of like nature. There's a lot of like uh, I think he was also kind of like part of a occult revival and there's you know the, the the black moon and the white moon on either side and solvate coagula which is an, a reference to alchemical stuff and then like the goat which well, it, is depicted as having like breasts and and an erect phallus and and the light between the horns um and in being like this this um in between state the the liminality that that's found in Magic. And I think that's actually what what he's kind of what he's kind of come to represent. And I say he isn't very lightly, but they've come to represent this symbol, this Baphomet. It is not, and this is my understanding, Baphomet was never a god, a demon, a, a historical figure that was worshipped within paganism. Um, we're not going to get into the huge history of Baphomet, but it's important to understand the depiction of the Baphomet, as as Austin stated, has depicted so much duality within one that it's become this occult concept that has been revered ever since the the revival of the occult in the late 1800s because this symbol covers that liminal space it covers that betwixt spirit um so i like the baphomet i think it's a beautiful indicator of something that is extremely non-human that has scared and and brought fear into many people but also been an example of the light to others because it was the first depiction of something that they felt they aligned with a little bit more um i know when i see the baphomet i don't worship it i don't put it on my altar but i do know that there is a reverence for this type of liminal spirit um even if he's more egregoric from from time and attention than actual worship.
Does that Absolutely. make sense? Yeah, no, for sure. And I think it um, is a really good meditation point. I also um, really like the image. So mm-hmm. I'm not dogging on point. it. I don't, I'm not dogging on anybody who does. I thoroughly, um, thoroughly enjoy the illustration that was drawn by, by Levy. Um, I think too, um, there's some other ones that you have on here. Um, yes, well, well, we spoke to to Gemma Gary in a previous interview, and she talked about how the bukkha doesn't represent a male version of, of deity in any way, but complete duality, all duality, um, carries both forms. That's why... Uh, uh, Bukka isn't uh, the bukkah isn't rest necessarily considered to be a, a he all the time. And I actually didn't know that upon reading the book alone, a traditional witchcraft. It was nice to kind of hear that from Gemma herself about this figure, about this this venerated figure within her craft. Too oftentimes there's um, a lot of lore, and I know I talked to Gemma about this as well in the podcast that we had, um, oftentimes where like the devil will take upon um, like a shape-shifting role either as male or female depending on the, because in a lot of witch lore upon uh, initiation, uh, sexual copulation with the devil has to occur. Um, and so depending on, uh, you know, the lore, there's going to be like the devil being able to shapeshift into a woman. We see this with, um, uh, the story of Andro Mann, who, mm-hmm. um, the devil transformed into a, um, a deer and uh, also a woman at times, but it was the queen of Elfame who who carried all the the craft with her, as he said. Mm-hmm. Um, we see uh, the story of not Jacob Bohm. That's the guy who invented or who kind of compiled the theory of doctrine of signatures. Um, Jacob something. I can't remember his name, um, who the devil appeared to him with uh, in the shape of a black dragon with 16 breasts, um, I believe. 16, I know, I know. Um, And promised to help him in every which way. Um, And and, and, (laughs) right, and ended up actually um, fucking him over for a big portion of his life. And then Mary came and ripped up his his contract with the devil, et cetera, Mm -hmm. et cetera. But it's very fascinating. Um, But yeah, there's a lot of uh, shape shifting that occurs with the the witch's devil um, that I always find very fascinating, especially because when we refer to the devil, we often refer to the devil as he, I even do this. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's fair. I think that's fine. Um, But it is very interesting to take into account that there is still a level of like spirit, uh, gender and sexuality. We're trying to apply these as as terms for ourselves, right? And Mm Yeah, so I, I think that there there's room for breadth for spirits for 
to be a lot more complex than in the way that we realize. Mm-hmm. Um, and really what we're doing is, is applying our language um, on spirits and not the other way around. I've had interactions with plant spirits who've made it very clear to me. They're like, I am a woman. Um, many spirits uh, that, I, that I work with are, are very clear in the way that they they um, have appeared as like women and sometimes will even say like, I am a woman um, and prefer to be referenced so as she. And then we also have um, spirits that I work with that oftentimes are non-binary mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or, or genderless, I should say, and sexless also in their, their depiction. So yeah, it's very, very complicated. I know this is a, this is a personal thing. This is just a personal gnosis. I very much see the figure of the man in black as androgynous. Um, I know it's historically stated as the man in black because it was from this idea of the devil approaching you at the crossroads of the woods to make a pact. But the way that I envision this, this liminal spirit, there is no face, there is no gender. In fact, the robes themselves really disguise that. And, and, and I, I think that's on purpose. Um, I see it is a black shadowy figure that has no shape. And in fact, this figure has appeared to people throughout history and sometimes is thought of as, uh, as been called the, uh, the man in the black hat. The thing is, is still there is no real gender associated with it. That's just what people have named it throughout time. So I know whenever I draw, because I love to draw the man in black pictures, you can see that in this picture down here behind me and in a few other pieces of my art, you will always see that the picture is very androgynous and I do so purposefully because I need that to be understood that a liminal spirit like the man in black doesn't come with a gender they come with a mission and that's all that matters so we see a timeline of how gender has played a part in paganism and occultism Uh, in modern day we get to choose how it affects our personal craft and I think that's one of the things that really needs to be pointed out at the end of our episode here is to understand that The majority of the discussions that we are having in a lot of very small, tiny occult online spaces are not the way that people, occultists, pagans, witches are living in their lives outside of these online spaces. So many of the arguments and the discussions, they can be wonderful, they can be, they can be horrible, but at the same time, when it comes down to it, how it affects your personal craft is totally up to you. If you hear the terms divine feminine, divine masculine, and it makes you recoil and, and you don't want it to be part of your craft, that is beautiful. Don't do it. You don't have to. But you need to leave a little room, in my opinion, for people who it is made part of their craft. As long as they aren't saying that you're wrong because you're not doing it that way, then hey, who cares? That's totally fine. Still, I still take my stance on Gaia, though. It's a scam. Oh, no, totally. I, I literally <laughs> for it. I 100% know it is. Um, but yes, so <laughs> you've been listening to Southern Bramble, a podcast of Crooked Ways. I'm Marshall, the Witch of Southern Light. You can find me on TikTok and Instagram at Witch of Southern Light. You can find me on Twitter at MarshallWSL. You can find me on Redbubble, where I sell my art and photography projects on lots of merchandise at MarshallWSL. And if you'd like to, you can support me on Patreon for as little as $5 a month to ask questions and have access to um, early TikToks to uh, early content, my own personal private art and spells and recipes.
And I'm Austin BainXBramble on Instagram and BainXBramble.com. I, as most of you know, am a perfumer. I have some, uh, I always have something going on on my website. My books are back open for um, doing consultations and divinations. Um, You can inquire on my website at BainXBramble.com, as well as all my perfumes, formulas, talismans, effigies, and everything else that I concoct. So thank you all so much. Southern Bramble is a Patreon-supported podcast. We'd like to thank all of our top-tier patrons by name. V, Timothy, the Witch of Patapsco Forest, the Modern Babylon, the Lady Ghost, Seashaw, Pamela, Nicolette, Keith, Josie the Mountain Troll, Jens, Jennifer, Giles, Florence, Cindy, CDJ, Anastasia Beaverhausen, and Adity. Thank you all so much.